perfect in every way, giver of every good gift. God, would you be with us now, God, as we come to your word? Would you open the eyes of our hearts, Lord? Would you hide me behind the cross? Would you deliver your word to your people with clarity, with insight, with precision? God, be with us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning to all of you. It's wonderful to be with you. If you're visiting with us for the first time or maybe you've been away, we're so glad that you're here with us. We've been in a sermon series since Easter called Come and See. This is the invitation of Jesus when any of his disciples had questions, Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus said, come and see. When Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, it was Philip that said, come and see. And so it is, we learn that if we have a question that's about Jesus or for Jesus, more than just being asked to think about it, that we're asked to get up and come along with Jesus and to see who he is and even more, to see what he sees. And so for the last four weeks, we've looked from God's perspective of what it means to come and see living, dying, giving, and growing. And before we get out of this series, we thought it might be important to look from God's perspective at what it looks like when we pray. God, why do we pray? It's a little bit of a hazardous question, really, to ask God, why do we pray? Because faith, actually, is about prayer. Prayer is about faith. And faith, we know, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It can be a hazardous question to ask God, God, why do you want us to pray? See, our rational brains aren't really sure why God wants us to do it. We find ourselves thinking, since God is all-knowing, he's omniscient, why does he need me to tell him about things that he already knows? Why would I tell him about what I'm thinking or how I'm feeling? He already knows it. His word of God says it. So why do I need to tell him? And if he knows, why isn't he already doing something about it, more importantly? And, and our brains go to questions like, since God is sovereign, every single thing from beginning to end has already happened in him. So, so it's already ordained. Why would I believe that my prayer could change something? Why would I ask him to slow something down or to speed something up? What makes me think that my prayers do anything? And so it seems that our very good theology about God can actually wrestle with what God asks of us in prayer. Have any of you ever had the experience in prayer, it's kind of like blowing up a helium balloon. You get a good prayer, one that you really need to lift to God, and you, you put some helium in it, and you tie it up really good with an amen, and you let it go, and you watch it rise, and, and all your hopes and your, your prayers to God are in that balloon, and then you watch it just kind of get stuck underneath an invisible ceiling right there. 
and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to blow up another one. And you blow it up and you tie it up and you say amen and you watch it rise and it gets stuck. It just hovers there. And before you know it, it just seems like there's a whole ceiling full of prayer balloons that have never got where you wanted them to go. They just never got the altitude. They never made it into the throne room of God because God knows you have not gotten an answer to that prayer. Anybody? If you have, you are not alone. And if you have, I want you to go ahead and admit it, that our prayer lives can be frustrating. Our prayer lives can be fearful. I want you to admit it, and I want you to let Jesus this morning invite you to come and see what he sees on the other side, on the top of those balloons, what that balloon bouquet looks like from his point of view. Will you let him show you what he sees through your prayers? We're going to look at two different events in Scripture today. Two different events united by just one thing, and that's that they both happen in the city of Dothan. And the only time that Dothan is mentioned at all in Scripture is in these two times. So just two times in all of Scripture. And I'm going to suggest to you that between these two events, we will find the spectrum of our prayer lives. So let's dig in. If you want to uh, follow along as I read, the first passage is from 2 Kings. It's on page 294 in your pew Bibles. It's 2 Kings chapter 6. And I'm actually going to start reading in verse 8, just to give us a little bit of setup to this. 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. Once when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers He said, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, and and the man of God is Elisha the prophet, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, take care not to pass this place because the Arameans are going down there. The king of Israel sent word to the place of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice he warned such a place so that it was on the alert. The mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. He called his officers and said to them, Now tell me, who among us sides with the king of Israel? And then one of his officers said, No one, my lord king. It is Elisha, the prophet in Israel, who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. He said, Go and find him where he is. I will send and seize him. He was told he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots there, a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. His servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? He replied, Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, how many of you have ever wanted the experience in prayer that Elisha got? You pray it and boom, right? Just like God's like pulls back the curtain and there it is, an angel army that, that he can see, that the servant can see. And when you see the angel army, <coughs> it's not just the army. You actually get to see God's intention. And, and when you see God's intention, it's not just the intention. You see God's victory. In that one single prayer, Elisha and his servant got the whole enchilada. Boom. Done. That is it. You see, when we have faith, even the faith of a mustard seed, we believe that God can and does answer prayers as immediately, as powerfully, as profoundly as he answers the prayer of Elisha. And because we believe it, we want it all the time, period. That's what we want our prayer experience to be. That is how we will know why we're supposed to pray. But as I mentioned to you, that's not the only thing that ever happened in Dothan. About a thousand years before Elisha, there was a son of Jacob named Joseph. Maybe you've heard of him. He had a very beautiful coat of many colors that his father gave him because he actually loved him more than his 11 other brothers. It was in Dothan that Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, and taken on a very long, very unexpected, very unwanted trip to Egypt. You know, the scripture doesn't record one thought, one word, not one prayer from Joseph when he was in that pit and being dragged against his will to Egypt. Silence. Scripture doesn't even follow his story for a whole chapter. We learn this in chapter 37 of Genesis, and chapter 38 goes on to Judah and Tamar. What's happening to Joseph in the pit? Scripture doesn't pick his story up until chapter 39. And even though we are not directly told from Scripture what Joseph must have been thinking or feeling, Scripture absolutely invites us to put ourselves in his place. To ask, well, how would I feel? Have you ever been lowered into a pit? by someone that you've trusted or loved? Maybe not literally like Joseph, but figuratively? Have you ever been so isolated, so disoriented, so agonized that you can't pray? I have. And so I can imagine what Joseph's questions must have been, God, what? Why? God, where am I? God, what's happening? I, I had dreams. God, they aren't even my own dreams. These are dreams that you gave me, dreams that I know you gave me. God, what is happening? What are you doing here? It seems reasonable that this might be Joseph's experience in the pit there in Dothan. You know that questions like these at times like this 
are our prayers to God. We may not know it, but God knows it and God hears it. Well, it wasn't too long before a partial answer to Joseph's prayerful questions came. You see, it became evident that God intended to save Jacob and all of his other sons, the ones that threw Joseph in the pit, he wanted to save them from famine through Joseph in Egypt. Would knowing that have changed Joseph's suffering that night in the pit or on that bumpy road to Egypt? Maybe. I don't know. But you see, that was only a partial answer from God because it wasn't until 430 years later that God called Moses to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They wouldn't have been in Egypt at all had it not been for Joseph. 430 years went by before the Exodus event, the single most important event in all of Hebrew theology. Would knowing that have eased Joseph's suffering when he was alone and betrayed and desperate? Maybe. It's hard to say. But you see, even that is a partial answer to God's, to what God was doing because this Exodus theme is taken up by Jesus Christ himself. He embraces that as we journey from the bondage of sin into the freedom of grace. And this will continue, this journey, this exodus, until Christ comes back for all of us. So you see Joseph's answers, Joseph's questions whispered from that pit won't be fully and completely answered by God until the end of time. Would that have eased Joseph's suffering? I'm thinking no. I'm thinking that's a long time to wait on God. And I think this might be what uh, frightens us about prayer. We're afraid that God might just take eternity to make some things clear. So for us, I think somewhere between Elisha's experience in Dothan and Joseph's experience in Dothan is the spectrum of where our prayer lives reside, right? We all want to have the experience of Elisha. We want the immediacy. We want the boldness. We want the confidence. We want to be able to call on God and say, God, show them. God, do this. And we believe that can happen. And yet we also have within us a fear that we might be Joseph. And so that causes some hesitancy. We fear the dark night of the soul. We fear the possibility that our eyes won't miraculously be opened when we need them to be opened, that God's plan won't become apparent. It happens. Mother Teresa, after getting her first call from God, such a clear call, the voice from God, she knew it was God speaking to her, telling her to go and minister to the outcasts of Calcutta. Mother Teresa went 50 years of her life without hearing from God again. 50 years. 
In the book, The Love That Made Mother Teresa by David Scott, the personal letters of Mother Teresa were published after her death in 1997. In a letter to her spiritual director in 1957, she shares this incredibly personal prayer. She writes, in the darkness, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me, the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved? I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such a convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I am told that God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Somehow in the experiences of Elisha and Joseph and Mother Teresa, we become aware that prayer is a very sacred, very scary place. We become keenly aware when we enter into prayer that we are created things and that we are in the presence of our Creator. That here all things are possible, even the silence of God. And that can make us very uncomfortable. And yet God repeatedly asks us to pray, call upon me and I will answer you. God commands us to pray, pray without ceasing. Jesus teaches us to pray. Why is God so adamant about calling us into this thin patch, this thin patch of ice? It feels like it could break underneath us. Why does God want us there so badly? And my friends, why is it that when we enter into this place, so many of us, whether it's all the time or even some of the time, feel that we are desperately inadequate here. The voice in our head starts getting louder and louder. You don't know how to pray. You don't have the words. Who are you kidding? You know what? You shouldn't pray. You're way too loud. You shouldn't pray. You are way too shy. You're too old. You're too young. The voice masters us before we even get a little way out into this thin place. Richard Foster says it like this. Our problem is that we assume prayer is something to be mastered. That puts us in an up-top position where we are competent and in control. But when praying, we come underneath where we calmly and deliberately surrender control and become incompetent. Foster is saying that our reluctance to go to God in prayer boils down to a control issue. 
We want to be in control of the words we say, of the time we take, of who's listening to us pray, because we do not want to be found incompetent, not in church, certainly not before God. My friends, if you have ever felt incompetent in prayer, you are in the heart of prayer. That is the purpose of prayer, is to make us aware of our great inability in the face of God's great ability. If you think you've been doing it wrong, you have been doing it right all this time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. God persists in wooing us into this thin place. He persists in calling us to join him where he is waiting for us in all the hope and all the fear and all the doubt of praying. And so would you pray with me, God, would you open our eyes and help us see what you see when we pray? Well, I believe without question, the first thing that God will show us is that prayer changes us. Now this isn't just something that we write on a coffee mug. It is so true. In prayer, we realize that we are part of God's life, not that he is part of ours. In prayer, we realize that as much as we would like to mold God into the shapes of our hopes and desires, that God will actually mold us into his image. In prayer, God changes us. And because you've heard it so often, I am going to give you an example that you might not have thought of before. Something that I've experienced in ministry here with you at Bel Air Church, and it happens in premarital counseling. There are times when the pastors here have the joy of being asked to officiate someone's wedding. It's so wonderful. And all of the pastors will meet with a couple for a few times, get to know them, and do a little premarital counseling. Well, one of the things that I like to do in this counseling time is to put some really taboo subjects out on the table, just to get them out there, just to be able to talk about them. So I'll bring up finances, politics, parents, sex. I'll ask the couple if they're currently physically intimate with each other. And some will very honestly say, no, we want to wait until our wedding night. So awesome. But others will very candidly say, yeah, you know what, yes we are. And my next question to them will be, are you investing as much time in developing your spiritual intimacy through prayer as you are your physical intimacy? And if the answer is no, you have never seen two people look at each other like complete strangers more quickly. Like, well, no, we don't, pray, we don't pray together. You mean in the same room out loud together? No. I mean, I think we, we, we pray. I pray for you. You pray, you pray for me. Right? We don't do it together. Like, not in the same room. Could you imagine if those answers were reversed? Like, yeah, we don't do that together in the same room. <laughs> My friends... How will your beloved know your deepest heart for him and her or her if they never hear you pray for them? And if we don't learn how to pray for our spouse while we are engaged, do you think it's going to come easily during marriage? And if we don't learn how to pray for our spouse in marriage, how are we going to learn how to pray for our kids? 
And if we don't learn to pray for our own children, where are we going to develop a heart to pray for all of God's children? Prayer is a muscle that must be exercised. Now, nobody knows better than me that it's scary to go to a gym when you know you've got little muscles, right? You try and put on the bulkiest clothes you can, you try and hide it, but you're not going to build that muscle unless you go. You cannot build a muscle that you don't work. And if you want to determine to build your prayer life, the only way to do it is to pray. And so would you build that muscle? So here's a way you can try it. Have any of you ever had a fight with your spouse? Really? Nobody? I mean, Bob and I will admit, we've had a, okay. So just in case it ever happens to any of you, here's an idea. If you're ever in a fight with your spouse, there's a moment that you can kind of feel where it's either going to escalate or drop into silence, right? You know that moment? So in that moment, pray. Step into it. Pray out loud. Grab your spouse by the hands and say, dear God, open my eyes. This one whom I love, we're just not seeing each other right now. And so God, I ask that you would help me see what he or she sees, that you would help me feel what he or she feels. God, I ask that you would grow me right now so that I can love this person better. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that, I guarantee you will not remember what you were fighting about, and neither will your spouse. And so in premarital counseling, I will give the couples a challenge. I will ask them, would you consider fasting from your physical intimacy just until your wedding night in order to develop your spiritual intimacy in prayer? Would you take that challenge? And you would be surprised how many couples say yes. How many get excited about trying something that they actually don't think is possible? And inevitably they come back and they report that once they started praying together, out loud in the same room where they could hear each other, that their empathy for each other grew. That they came to know each other much better. That their communication was so much easier. And that they felt they would have no trouble waiting until their wedding night for the complete gift of intimacy that God intends for them to have. You see, in prayer, we are afraid that God is going to take something away from us that we happen to love. But actually, God wants to give us something that we don't yet have. God wants to enlarge our faith when we pray. God wants to extend our trust through prayer. God wants to grow in us the place that we have in ourselves for him to live and move and have his being in us. All of these things are what God wants to do. And let me tell you, if you are not yet married or in a romantic relationship, you're not off the hook. Pray with your best friend. Pray with a coworker. Pray over your postal carrier. Prayer will change your heart for whoever you pray. And if you're willing to take a risk, I urge you to pray for an enemy. Scriptural, 
Think about somebody that you nurture those bad thoughts toward and say a prayer for their welfare and see if God changes your heart. Well, prayer not only changes us, but it changes others when we pray. I'm going to share with you an experience that I had when I was preparing to be ordained as a pastor. Uh, to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church, it's a requirement that we do 400 hours of field education as a chaplain. And so I was at UCLA Medical Center, and the way the program is set up is that each chaplain is assigned two different floors in the hospital. And the chaplains do rounds on these floors, just the way doctors do rounds, except the chaplains check in on the spiritual well-being of each patient, uh, according with whatever the, the faith perspective of that patient might be. And each of these people can call for the chaplain that is assigned to their floors, and the chaplains will go at any time. And so I was assigned, uh, one of the floors I had was a transplant floor. People that were so sick, so high on the donor list that they were actually in the hospital waiting. Very hard time for these people trying to listen for the sound of a helicopter. Horrible experience and they needed prayer. And I was also assigned PICU, Pediatric ICU. And it was one morning, early in the morning, that I received a call and was asked to go and meet a family in PICU. They wanted the chaplain to come and pray with them. And as I entered this room, I remember that it was pretty dark. There weren't any lights on in the room, and there was just a little bit of morning light that was coming in through the blinds on the window. And when I walked in, I saw a woman standing next to a crib, and, and she was holding a baby. And then I looked to my right, and there were three women. Seated on a chair was the mother, and she was holding a baby boy across her lap. He was about 12 months old. And I remember thinking that her posture and the posture of the child reminded me of the Pieta, of Mary holding Jesus when he was taken from the cross. This is the family that had called and asked for prayer. And behind her, to her right and to her left, were her mother and her sister. And when I came to them, they told me that the doctors had been there that morning and said that the child would not survive the day. And so they did what only they could think to do, which was to call and ask for prayer. And so I got down on my knees in front of that child and in front of that mother. And all four of us laid hands on that baby boy. All four of us prayed, prayed for health and life and healing. We prayed for God's mercy over him, for God's mercy over his family. We prayed our hearts out. Their Christian faith was so powerful in these prayers, praying, petitioning God for this life. And after such a long time, we had prayed ourselves out emptied ourselves in prayer. And by the end of it, we were truly able to say, not our will, but thine be done. Into your hands, Jesus, we place him. And we trust you. Amen. And then there was silence in the room. And very quietly, a voice from over here said, you 
pray my baby too? I had forgotten she was there. I don't think any of us had remembered that we weren't alone in that room. This woman all that time had been listening. It was clear that English wasn't even her first language, so it wasn't about what we were saying. It was about the act of praying. And so with all her heart, she wanted to come with us and place her child onto this very thin ice along with this other child. And so the four of us got up and went to her. All of these women with the mother holding that baby came and laid our hands on this woman's child and on her. And the four of us prayed for the life and the health and the well-being of this baby. We prayed God's mercy over this baby. And at the end of the day, this little boy had been relieved of all of his pain and suffering, and he was taken home to be with Jesus. And as I left the hospital that day, walking down the corridor, I could see somebody who was moving quickly, and all of a sudden I recognize that it's the woman, the, the other mother, and she's looking for somebody, and all of a sudden she's moving very quickly toward me, and I see her see me, and she says, chaplain, lady, and suddenly she's in front of me, and she grabs my arms, and she says, lady, my baby eat full bottle today is a miracle. God, give us eyes to see what happens when we pray. What if through your prayers, through your painful, suffering prayers, God intends to heal someone else? Are you okay with that? It's a hard question, I know. What if through your pain, God gives you his eyes and his heart for someone else's suffering. Would you willingly receive those eyes to see what God sees? It took 50 years for Mother Teresa to receive those eyes from her Savior. In one of her last journal entries, she writes, for my meditation, I am using the passion of Jesus. I am afraid I make no meditation of my own, but only look at Jesus suffer and keep repeating, let me share with you this pain. If my pain and suffering, my darkness and separation give you a drop of consolation, my own Jesus, do with me as you wish. I am your own. Imprint on my soul and life the suffering of your heart. If my separation from you brings others to you, I am willing with all my heart to suffer all that I suffer. Your happiness is all I want. I have begun to love my darkness for I believe now that it is a part, a very small part, of Jesus' darkness and pain on the earth. 
I want to satiate your thirst with every single drop of blood that you can find in me. Please do not take the trouble to return soon. I will wait for you for all eternity. Prayer opens our hearts to experience the heart of Jesus. And that is what changes us. Prayer opens our eyes so that we can see the hand of God moving in this world. And that is what changes this world. If we weren't praying, if those dots never got connected, the world would be a very random, very purposeless place without design or direction. And for many people, that is what the world holds. And it's a very small and a very troubling world. But for those of us who are willing to risk, willing to risk prayer, for those of us that are willing to say, God, I am going to reach for you. I am going to stretch myself out on this thin ice, Lord, and I believe that you will find me here. For those of us who place ourselves here, we have a 100% better chance of seeing God. I believe with all my heart that God will meet you in your prayers. And I believe with all my heart that God is reviving and is renewing all things, reconciling all things to himself, and that he will give us eyes to see through our prayers. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.